Hey everyone, I'm Ben Norton, and this is the Multipolarista podcast. And today we are talking about the presidential elections in Colombia. These are really important, I would say, historic elections. We just saw the first round was held on May 29th, and the left-wing alliance called the Pacto Histórico, the Historic Pact, won. And I think it's, there's a reason it's called the Historic Pact. Colombia traditionally has been one of the most really kind of colonized countries in Latin America and the Caribbean, a kind of an outpost for U.S. imperialism. Hugo Chavez, the Venezuelan president, famously referred to Colombia as the Israel of Latin America. And for 20 years now, Colombian politics has been dominated by a very right-wing, you could say far-right movement called Uribismo, which is named after the former president of Colombia, Álvaro Uribe Vélez. And Uribe his family is closely linked to drug cartels. He had been working with the Medellin cartel. He, his family is also closely linked to right-wing paramilitary groups and death squads, like one called the 12 Apostles that have been implicated in killing uh, labor organizers and social activists. Colombia also has one of the highest murder rates of activists in the world every single year. Hundreds of human rights activists and social movement activists are killed, and there's complete impunity. So it was it was very historic that the historic pact won the first round of the election on May 29th in a landslide. I'm just going to show the the election results here before going to our two excellent guests. These are the official election results from the Colombian government. And people can see here that the left-wing alliance with the candidate Gustavo Petro and the vice presidential candidate Francia Marquez, they won in a landslide with 40.3% of the vote. And what was interesting about this, and that's why I'm going to, in a second here, go to our panelists to, to talk about the, the very interesting developments in the Colombian right, is that well, the left-wing alliance, the Pacto Histórico, did win, and that's a historic win because the left in Colombia has been completely marginalized and oppressed for many decades. Another very interesting development in this election is that the third-place candidate, who is not going to the runoff, his name is Federico Gutierrez. He's also just known as Fico Gutierrez. He was the kind of establishment right-wing candidate who was backed by the Oribista movement and former president Alvaro Uribe, he actually lost. And in a surprise victory in second place is a, an even more far-right candidate named Rolfo Hernandez. He is a multimillionaire real estate developer. He has an estimated $100 million in wealth. And he's also very right-wing. He's made a lot of misogynist comments, especially about um, Venezuelan women. He's made a lot of racist comments. And he also made this strange remark in 2016 where he said that he's an avid follower of Adolf Hitler. Now, in 2021, when he started his presidential campaign, he backtracked and said that he didn't mean to say that it was a slip of the tongue. But it does show that this candidate is very far right and he represents a new kind of right wing in Colombia that is actually not necessarily the same as the Uribista right wing represented by Federico Gutierrez, who is not going to round two of the election. So there will be a second round of the presidential election, which will be on June 19th. And 
to talk about the situation in Colombia, I have two excellent guests from the Troika Collective. The Troika Collective is an excellent anti-imperialist media collective run by people in Latin America and the Caribbean and the diaspora. You can go to troikacollective.com. Here's their website. Collective is spelled with a K, troikacollective.com. And they have their social media links. And they have comrades on the ground in Colombia who have been reporting on the grassroots struggle against this right-wing narco regime that has been responsible for killing hundreds of activists just in the past year alone. And of course, Colombia is one of the U.S. government's most important allies in the region. It has seven U.S. military bases. It has received billions of dollars from the U.S. government through so-called Plan Colombia. So I have two great guests with me today from Troika Collective. The first is Libre, and Libre is on the ground in Colombia, who's been reporting on the situation. I'm also joined by Yamir Chabur, and I'll go to him in a second. But Libre, I, I did a, an overview for people who don't know anything about Colombian politics. You know, I talked about the main candidates, Gustavo Petro, representing the kind of left-wing forces. Now you have this other, you know, uh, multimillionaire kind of far-right candidate, Rolo Fernandez. And then you also had the Oribista right-wing candidate, Federico Gutierrez. So the right-wing vote was divided in the first round. Can you, can you talk about what the situation has been like on the ground there in Colombia, what the grassroots struggle, the social movements are saying about this election, and what they think about the various candidates? So first of all, this is a huge victory, um, definitely a historic moment for El Pueblo de Colombia, the people of Colombia um, that have gone out. And we can just look to some of the numbers, right? Um, this has been the largest turnout um, uh, in uh, Colombian politics, right? With 54% um, of the population going out to vote. Um, and furthermore, uh, a landslide victory of almost 12%, um, right, by a left-wing candidate, um, uh, Gustavo Petro and Francia Marquez. Um, this, so the energy, the energy is high. People are like, yes, like we have this victory. Um, this, this is the moment for us to like, move forward, but also the reality here in Cuba or in Colombia, um, as you were sharing, right? is that we have to consider the reality of Colombia. Not everybody is able to go out to vote because this is a country um, where people that organize um, and people that try to go exercise their rights to vote um, have been killed. And we can see just before um, the elections uh, yesterday that um, uh, one of the leaders that was organizing was killed along with four of his family members. Um, and so we're talking about uh, voting being a high risk activity here in Colombia um, because of uh, trying to maintain the status quo, um, trying to maintain a narco dictatorship um, in favor of, um, of the bourgeoisie. And so what Pacto Historico represents is a move in favor of um, the working class people, uh, the people that when we look at Max, uh, maps of Colombia and La Periferias on the peripheries, right? Individuals that are looking um, for their rights to be respected, right? This scarf that I'm wearing right now is from Cauca, right? Which is an indigenous region um, on the northern border of Colombia um, that, that
that voted um, in mass in favor of Gustavo Petro. And one of the reasons why, um, and we'll dive into the particularities um, in uh, a little more as we continue to talk, right? But this is a region that has been affected by Urubismo um, in a way um, because there's a closed border with Venezuela. And so that means there's no commerce in a place that uh, historically speaking has had good relations with the um, government of Venezuela in terms of economics. Um, and so there are, um, Petro has said that he will open up the border and open up talks with Venezuela um, so that they can um, talk economics and also um, to resolve some of the contradictions. The largest amount of Colombians outside of Colombia is in Venezuela and they aren't able to vote. Um, and um, so these are just some of the things that we have to take into consideration. Now, the other thing, the other interesting thing is the second runner of Rodolfo is an individual that has not really been involved. This is an individual that hasn't gone out to talks, right? And so people are like, mm, it's interesting that he was able to get in second place. But again, here in Colombia, the people are still happy because this is also a victory because the candidate Fico did not win. He will not be um, he will not be in the runoffs, and that represents historically um, an end, uh, at least symbolically, of Urubismo. Um, and so we're gonna um, we're gonna be watching this. There has already been um, over five hundred reported irregularities. Um, so these are things that we want to be aware of as we continue to observe the elections. Um, because although this is a historic moment, although there is a landslide victory, um, we're going to be watching as the left, um, as the right starts to organize and build some coalitions against uh, the candidate uh, Gustavo Petro and Francia Marquez. Fico has already endorsed, um, has already endorsed Rodolfo. So we're going to be watching some of these things play out um, going up to June 19th. And we have to be very aware um, of these realities. Yeah. Uh, someone made a comment. I, <laughs> that is definitely not a Ukrainian bandana that Libre is wearing. Someone thought it was the Ukrainian flag. <laughs> no. So, uh, no worries. Uh, there, there are no supporters of, uh, the far right puppet imperialist regime in Ukraine here. <laughs> so I, I do want to get to you in a second, Jamir, to talk about the situation, but really quickly at Libre, I just want to follow up with a, a, an important point. You talked about the map of the voting in the first round of this presidential election. And here I have this map and you can see you, you made an important point about Petro winning in the peripheral areas, these areas that there, there has been a lot of violence. And Colombia has been a country that's been wrecked by violence for many decades. I mean, there was a period that was actually called La Violencia, the violence. And this violence has been targeted against campesinos, against farmers, against poor people, against the Afro-Colombian community and marginalized communities. And it's no surprise that people from these communities that have been most affected by the violence of these paramilitary groups and death squads and drug cartels, they are the communities that voted for Gustavo Petro. And not only Petro, but I should say that it's very important that his running mate, vice presidential candidate, Francia Marquez, is herself from the Afro-Colombian community, which has been completely marginalized historically. This is the image that they've used for their campaign. And uh, Francia Marquez, uh, honestly, I actually think that 
um, her politics are in some ways are even better than Gustavo Petro. You know, Petro has been running a kind of center left campaign. He, he constantly talks about progressivism. He's not talking about socialism. I mean, Petro is an interesting guy because he actually was a socialist guerrilla in his youth. He was part of a, an armed revolutionary socialist group called M19, the 19th of, of May movement. But he, he later, you know, uh, put down his arms and then he became a, a kind of more mainstream social democratic politician. But the fact that he's running this campaign with a grassroots organizer from the Afro-Colombian community is very important. And if you listen to her speeches, Francia Marquez, she's a great speaker, a very powerful speaker. And she talks about how every single day in Colombia, we are burying our loved ones. We are burying our comrades and social activists and people from the social movement. So before, one more question for you, Libera, and then I'm going to go to Yamir here. But can you just talk about what your experiences have been like there on the ground in Colombia, talking with people from these communities who have been so marginalized and have never been represented in Colombian politics. Do they think that with the Pacto Histórico, if, if, uh, you know, if Petro and Marquez can win, do they think that these, these communities that have been left out of Colombian politics will able to have a voice in, in the state? Um, the short answer is yes. And just to the map that you were showing, um, uh, um, that was talking about how people voted. If you look at that map, the same colors that voted for Petro also happen to be the places where there's the highest risk of people going out to vote. So something to also consider is yes, he did win uh, a landslide victory in these areas, but what has been made clear um, as we're here um, observing the elections and as we're learning about the reality of elections here in Colombia, is that there are no guarantees to people in the periphery regions, mostly indigenous, mostly African uh, communities. There are no guarantees for their safety if they choose to exercise their right to vote. What does that mean? That means that if people, uh, that means that people are scared. They literally are fearing their life and rightfully so. Um, because these paramilitary groups are most prevalent in the periphery regions, right? And so we can also say, right, Rodolfo is winning in places that, in essence, don't run as much of a risk for people to go out and vote and exercise their right to vote. And so these are things that we also have to consider that it has been said um, and not only has it been said by the communities, but the government has not given any guarantees um, that people um, are safe to go out and vote in specific regions. Um, and right, and these are working class regions, these are mining areas, um, these are the coastal regions. And so these are things to, um, to consider, very real realities that, um, that Gustavo Petro and more specifically, Francia Marquez, and, and I agree with your analysis, I, I, in terms of politics and way that she's able to engage, I think Francia is a very solid vice presidential candidate um, and, and really has played an integral role in addressing the issues of Afro-Indigenous, Afro-Colombian communities. And if they are to win, there's already plans to help um, address the, the issue that I just brought up that up to now, no government has been able to guarantee the safety against paramilitary groups that are stopping people from going out to vote. 
Um, and so that is absolutely um, key to, um, to understanding how the elections are playing out um, because not everybody that can vote is going out to vote and for different reasons. And the higher the risk, the people on the peripheries, right? These people had to really be careful. Now we're going into a second round. So we can expect to hear about people um, being assassinated leading up to June 19th because we have to maintain the fear so that they can get the results that they want, which would be for Rodolfo um, to be the winner. And so these are things that people should really be aware of. And, and like, this is, it's crazy how much of a risk that people are running just by going out to vote here in Colombia. People are rightfully scared um, in some regions to go out and vote, and so they don't. Absolutely. And we've we've seen these incredible images of these rallies held by the Pacto Histórico, by Gustavo Petro and Francia Marquez. And they're always they always have these massive teams of security. And for people watching here, you, these are rallies in which Gustavo Petro is speaking and they have these security guards holding these bulletproof shields and they're always wearing bulletproof vests as well. And Francia Marquez, the same thing happens when she speaks. And in fact, a few days before the election, Francia Marquez was speaking and someone shined a laser at her, which was clearly threatening her, saying, you know, we could shoot you if we wanted to. And when, when people, sh you know, shine a laser at someone in Colombia, that's not like shining a laser at someone in another country. I mean, the reality is in Colombia, if someone shines a laser at you, you could be killed because it's so common that politicians and social movement activists are killed in the country. So you're absolutely right to talk about the bravery of many of these figures. And, you know, we'll talk about some of the limitations of someone like Gustavo Petro, but I think we have to understand those political limitations in the context of the fact that they're in one of the most right-wing, one of the most colonized countries in the region that has not been able to exercise sovereignty and independence. But um, Jamir, I want to go to you. Uh, Jamir Chabur is also an organizer with the Troika Collective, and he's a member of the Colombian diaspora. And uh, can you talk about what the, what the response has been like in the diaspora community, what people are saying about Petro and the other candidates, and also about the influence of Uribismo, the, the right-wing Uribista movement within the diaspora community, because we saw this interesting speech that Francia Marquez, the VP candidate, gave. She was actually speaking in Washington, and she, pretty impressively, she called out what she called the ultra-right-wing lobby in the U.S. that has been pushing for more aggressive policies with this idea, also with this uh, talk of so-called Castro Chavismo, right? You can explain maybe what that is. So talk about what the narratives have been from the right wing in, in Colombia and in the diaspora and what people are thinking about this, this electoral process that's going on. Hey guys, um, so uh, to talk about the perspective of dia the, the, the diaspora, I would like to begin with uh, saying, um, yesterday I was in this uh, basically historic neighborhood of Jackson Heights, Queens, that historically it was known for having like Pablo Escobar's uh, minions, drug dealers, but now it's a little bit different, a little bit more working class uh, migrants with people with mixed politics. Um, but yesterday I was in a, in, a, in a place where we were supposed to face Francia and Petro win because a lot of people were pushing for the first round of, for them to win just for the fact that they're 
uh, afraid and they known like historically the right wing to do a lot of voter fraud or irregularities or go as far as to kidnap people during the second round. Um, so there was a lot of people who, who were depressed in, in the space I was in. Um, but I did, I remember doing an interview yesterday uh, for Alliance for Global Justice and just seeing the amount of Colombians in, in, the, um, in Bogota celebrating about how Petro and Francia Marquez made it to the second round. So I, I was telling my folks out in, in the diaspora, you know, we have to be optimistic. You know, during times of pessimism, you got to be you got to have revolutionary optimism um, because we, we made it this far with a campaign that was ran by Gustavo Petro, who's an ex-guerrilla, and Francia Marquez, who's an Afro-Colombian social leader. Um, but what people are saying, too, is people are like, st they still blame Uribe. They think that, you know, he's behind this. And of course, you know, the right wing was very smart of how they were able to kind of like what, what, what they did with Rodolfo, this, this uh, candidate that is a, is a corporate millionaire, open fascist, that he's being called the Trump of Colombia. Um, that basically the me, because I was very surprised. I'll just start with that. I was very surprised that he made it to the second round. And yeah, that's him right there. I'm, I was so surprised because he didn't show up to no debates. Like I would follow the debates and it would seem that it would be between Petro, Fico and this other guy named Sergio Fajardo that he he uh, promoted himself as a center candidate. People thought that those were the top three and they didn't see Rodolfo, um, but it was very smart on the part of the um, the right wing because it's a part of the right wing and or conservative Colombians that are getting sick and tired of Uribeismo. So they promote Rodolfo as this neutral candidate um, and make it look like the country's polarized between left and right. Petro Fico or Petro Uribe. So they make Rodolfo look like he's the neutral choice. And also just, you know, he's a he's a he's a businessman. He's a he's a CEO. Um so fo folks uh like this 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 what had folks wanting to vote for him. Um and uh and we have to see what's gonna happen these next 15 days. I mean, uh, this guy, you know, he's like like you said, like what's been said openly fascist, praising Hitler, um, talking about how women have no place in politics, um, speaking about privatization of education, not respecting the 2016 uh, peace accords that were signed in Havana to promote the peace between the FARC rebels and the Colombian government. Um, so we, 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 have to, uh, we have to see like this right now is, I, I look at it like it's a reflection of the capitalist crisis going on worldwide and especially in the Colombian context where the choices are just so uh, uh, like opposite. So like you have somebody like Gustavo Petro, who's more like a social Democrat. Um, but you know, like, like what's said right here, um, Francia Marquez is more revolutionary than him because uh, she wants to push for restoration of relations with Venezuela. And then you have uh, Roldolfo, um, who I want to call Aldolfo, you know, the right wing calls Petro Petrovsky. Uh, you know, like they call him. Yeah, they try to they try to fuse him with uh, with Russia and Putin. I'm calling this guy Adolfo just because he's praising Hitler. Um, that that yeah, it's just so so it's so uh, opposite to each other. And you know, right now uh, we have to be optimistic that in these next 15 days that we have to push uh, folks who did not vote, which there was a big uh, there was a percentage of folks who didn't vote it. 
um, to go out and vote. Yeah, I mean, what, what's funny is uh, it, it might sound a little funny telling people like go out and vote because in, in the U.S. we're so used to hearing liberals be like, go out and vote for this imperialist who's not really any different from the Republican. But in the context of Colombia, I mean, this is a country that, again, has been so oppressed by U.S. imperialism and also by the right wing oligarchy that being able to vote for even a candidate who is really honestly kind of center left in the context of Colombia is actually something pretty groundbreaking and historic because the country has been so dominated by a viciously violent and repressive right wing. And, and you know, you mentioned, Jamir, you mentioned something very important, which is that the Colombian right wing did this very sophisticated tactic, which surprised me, where they basically they recognized that Federico Gutierrez, who was the kind of establishment right wing candidate who was backed uh, covertly by Oribe and his network. And I should say that the current far right president of Colombia, Ivan Duque, is also part of that patronage network led by Oribe. He was handpicked by Oribe. So they recognize in the polling and all of this that Fico Gutierrez was not very popular, that Uribismo has been, you know, tarnished the reputation by its close links to drug cartels and corruption and death squads. So they did this very sophisticated campaign where Rodolfo Hernandez, this hundred millionaire real estate mogul, he portrayed himself as the anti-corruption candidate. And his party is called the Liga, the League of Anti-Corruption Governors. So it has anti-corruption in the name when you go vote. And he also did this very sophisticated strategy where he told people that he would he would vote for Petro if it was between in the second round, if it was between Petro and Federico Gutierrez. So he portrayed himself as the right wing opposition to Uribismo. So basically, the second round of the election on, Ju on June 19th is going to be between the left-wing opposition, the actual left-wing opposition to Uribismo, and then a supposed right-wing opposition to Uribismo. But while that's how Rodolfo Hernandez has portrayed himself, right on the night of the election on May 29th, Federico Gutierrez, as soon as he accepted defeat, he immediately endorsed Rodolfo Hernandez. And then furthermore, we saw all of the right-wing Colombian politicians immediately circle the wagons and they all began endorsing Rodolfo Hernandez. Again, this is a guy who praised Hitler. He's a hundred millionaire oligarch. And here is a former minister and an important right-wing politician in Colombia named Juan Carlos Echeverri. And he tweeted, he said, no doubt, an engineer is better than a gorilla. And in the context of Colombian politics, this is clear what he's saying. He's saying that the engineer is the nickname given to this, this far-right oligarch, real estate mogul, Rodolfo Hernandez, because he calls himself the engineer because he got his start in engineering, even though he's, again, a real estate oligarch. And then the gorilla is a reference to Petro. So you have all of these right-wing figures. Now, this guy... Uh, Echeverri, he was a strong supporter and a major ally of FICO and had actually been considered one of the people who was going to run for president and he later dropped out and he endorsed Federico Gutierrez. So the point is that this guy, I wrote an article about him over at multipolarista.com, this, this far-right candidate 
who praised Hitler, Rov Hernandez, he's portraying himself as the so-called populist opposition to Uribismo, which is very cynical. But it shows that the right wing in Colombia recognizes that Uribismo is basically a spent force, that the Uribista movement is so unpopular, it's so corrupt, that they have to try to give a rebranding to, to their, the right wing. And I saw in Telesur, they interviewed a really good Colombian um, analyst, and he referred to this as the recycling of Uribismo. So, so uh, I'm going to jump back to you, uh, Libre, because, you know, you've been on the ground talking with people in Colombia. You know, um, Jamir talked about the influence of the right wing and the diaspora. What do people in the grassroots movements in Colombia think about Roro Fernandez? Do you think that they believe his whole anti-corruption shtick? Is that is that going to work as a strategy? So, in short, no, right? People people aren't really buying it. First of all, they're like, just go do a quick Google search. There are open cases against this individual. So it's interesting that they would claim to be anti corruption uh when they have open cases of fraud and um financial things um <clears throat> that are against them which this was brought up um uh by uh, gustavo petro in his speech last night um <clears throat> so the general to give people a little bit of context um and just to to dive a little bit more into right um rodolfo claiming to be um a populist uh, individual, a progressive individual. Um, he's just doing this neoliberal tactic of trying to appeal to people by offering them something different, right? Um, and so what we have to understand is um, on paper, on a presidential platform, when you look at what has been said about what will be done and plans, Petro and Francia Marquez are the only real candidates for election, right? Because Rodolfo, when he, like, and maybe this is a reason why he hasn't gone to these debates, but the few times that he has tried to speak on how he's going to address the economy and how he's going to improve the country, it's very like vague and very like broad responses that show a lack of knowledge about how to actually use um, uh, the system and like work towards addressing um, the presidential platform um, and the things that they say they're gonna do, right? Like I said, Francia and Petro have already said, right? To address some of the economic issues, right? They're gonna help a region uh, um, uh, called Cauca, right? And that's where this comes from, not to be confused with the Ukraine, um, right? This is, uh, this is a scar from the indigenous people um, that are organizing and, and that successfully organized, right, to get a huge turnout, despite being one of the regions that um, that faces some of these paramilitary attacks, showing out in mass to vote in favor of Petro and Francia Marquez, um, so that they can address some of the contradictions that have been created under Urubismo, where um, you have a border and a whole country um, that you want to do business with, that historically speaking, you've had good relationships with, that under Uribe was cut. Furthermore, again, um, the reality that Colombians, um, progressive Colombians, went to Venezuela 
And because there's no relationships with, with Venezuela, have not been able to vote. Um, and so on the ground, it's going to, the uphill battle of now to June 19th is going to be Gustavo Petro um, getting some of the voters of, um, like winning over some of the voters that voted for um, Rodolfo. Because I don't think, again, he's not, he's not a very strong candidate. He's just not Uribe. And I think we have to be very clear about that, right? And so is Petro, but um, they're trying to, to paint him as, uh, as like a communist and socialist, right? They're trying to throw out things to scare people, right? So like you were saying, um, they're trying to like compare him to like Maduro and Castro, which his opinions about these countries, we don't have to dive into it, right? But he's a social democrat, um, right? But what is important is that he's that there's going to be a task of Petro and Francia Marquez um, to get more voter turnout. Again, although historically speaking, this is the largest turnout, fifty four percent of the population went out to vote. Um, that leaves another um, forty six uh, percent of the population that can be moved to go out to vote in the elections. Um, and so we have to get some of the candidates from Rodolfo that if they actually understand that he doesn't have a plan to fix any of the issues and that he is a neoliberal candidate um, that doesn't really represent any systematic change that is different from Uribe, um, then, um, then, then we're in a good position. But the reality here in, in Colombia, and we just have to observe the 2018 elections here in Colombia, is that we also have to be strategic um, about talking about these instances um, uh, of fraud and how uh, Radolfo is a far right candidate that will take Colombia further back, will increase relationships with the U.S. in favor of the bourgeoisie against the interests of um, working class Colombians. Um, and so we're going to like the Pacto Historico is going to have to tell this story very well leading up to and also really push heavy on the things, um, on, on the platforms of being actual progressives with an actual plan and and let people understand the impact that they're going to have in favor of working class Colombians because the right is going to try to to come together in a coalition against Gustavo Petro. Right. And so, again, Fico already endorsed in his uh, losing speech, he endorsed Adolfo. And so, right, together, that would have been 10 million, um, uh, just over um, 10 million votes, right, in favor of Adolfo. So there's going to there's going to be uphill battle, not only to address um, some of the inconsistencies with claiming to be um, right, uh, a progressive populist candidate, um, but also the fact that there's really no platform or plan. Um, and unfortunately, the reality here in Colombia is that um, FICO lost. So it's an end to Urubismo, right? More symbolic than in actuality, right? But the, the thing that's happening here in Colombia is that they're saying they're both progressive candidates. They are both running with Afro-Colombian vice presidential candidates, Right. And so what we have to understand is the role of identity politics. Right. Francia Marquez, her politics are in favor of working class 
Colombians. And we're going to have to really push that hard because the vice presidential candidate under Rodolfo is going to try to use her identity to move people in the same way that Francia Marquez has successfully been able to coming from the working class, going to her community, going to vote in her community, right? Talking about places like Choco that are on the periphery that typically don't get attention, right? Focusing on these communities and going to talk to these communities like they have been, right? Francia Marquez, right before the elections, went to Cali, right? When she easily could have just stayed in Bogota. Why? Because the Afro-Colombian community needs to know what's going to be done when they vote in favor of Pacto Historico, and they need to know that the people are with them. So between Petro and Francia Marquez, they have been going to specifically these periphery um, regions that, historically speaking, have either has either led to the killing of or the kidnapping of people progressive individuals that are running for the presidential candidate, right? So that says something. There is change in the air. There is a reason that people are like, this is a historic moment. But we have to be also understanding of the climate that both of these individuals are being painted as progressives. Although we know in actuality and in practice, the only real candidates, the only real progressive um, left-leaning candidates um, are Petro and Francia Marquez. Yeah, well said. I mean, th this is a tactic often used by the so-called uh, populist right. And we've seen the attempt to portray Rodolfo Hernandez, again, who has $100 million in wealth, as a so-called populist, which, I mean, how much can you relate to average people if you have $100 million in wealth in a country, by the way, where the minimum wage in Colombia is around $250 per month, and over 40% of Colombians live in poverty? Over 40%, nearly half of Colombians live in poverty. And yet you have this candidate with $100 million who portrays himself as a man of the people. I mean, it's really cartoonish. But um, Yamir, I want to go back to you. And I, I should say to people watching or listening that uh, Yamir is, is such a dedicated organizer that he's he's in the bus on the way to a rally. You know, never time for a sleep, right? So that's why, you know, his, sometimes his uh, signal's going out a little bit here. But Yamir... Um, I want to ask you about uh, to talk more about the, situ the political situation in Colombia in the past several decades, the violence, how it's affected, you know, the, the Colombian community in the diaspora, also your family and your you know friends and loved ones. How you know how has it really impacted and destroyed so many communities? And do you think that you know the that this election could finally mark a kind of turning point in? in the extreme violence that Colombians have been subjected to over the past several decades, it's it's still so mind-blowing to me that there's all this constant propaganda about Venezuela, whereas right next door, every single year in Colombia, there are quite literally at least 90 massacres. Last year, there were more than 90 massacres of activists, and hundreds of activists are killed every single year in Colombia. And of course, meanwhile, we're supposed to believe that Venezuela is the the real problem. So talk about what the the violence has been like in Colombia and how it's affected Colombians. So yes, Ben, um, thank you for the, the shout out. Yeah, I'm always uh, moving. Um, just to add like where I'm going right now to add to like uh, this whole conversation, I'm right now headed to Philadelphia, a company of Venezuelan uh, feminists that they're here on tour against the sanctions. I'm here in support of them because they're right now 
uh, kind of being followed by the Esqualidos, um, the right-wing Gusano Venezuelans here in the diaspora. And, you know, I, I say this in connection because I do this, I do this because of my Bolivarian spirit, my, uh, my Bolivarian uh, nature, which has been influenced a lot by Hugo Chavez. And in, in, in connection with Colombia, you know, Colombia is a country that's Bolivarian, that was uh, liberated the way Venezuela, Ecuador, Peru, Bol Bolivia by, by Simon Bolivar. And all of this connection of, um, of like the violence, displacement in Colombian society goes back to it. an oligarchy, you know, a, a very vicious oligarchy. One of the vicious, one of the most vicious, I think, in, in, in all of South America. And that's because this is an oligarchy that formed from La, la traición de, la, de Bolívar, the, 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 the betrayal of Simón Bolívar, the, the liberator of, of South America who wanted to unify the continent in the, the great Colombia, La Gran Colombia. Um, so in order, in order to understand this, the context, like, uh, like to understand like the, the, the decades of violence, the, the century of violence in Colombian society um, is understanding that, that history and also like why is there this hate for Venezuela? You know, because Venezuela has awoken within Colombian society, within the Colombian youth, this Bolivarianism, you know, just, um, you know, not making Bolivar into just a statue or this like first grade thing that you had to know for school. No, he's awoken, uh, Chavez and Venezuela has awoken this amongst, you know, the masses of, of Colombians, um, which, which is the reason why there's this animosity towards Venezuela, but um, in, in like, in connection with this oligarchy, you know, this oligarchy for, for two centuries has been open to Vendepatria, you know, selling their land out to, to the United States imperialists, going back to the Panama Canal, um, allowing the U.S. to separate Panama from Colombia, allowing the U.S. to come in and kill banana workers, like during the banana massacre by the United Fruit Company, allowing um, the CIA under Plan Lasso which was led by William Yarborough to come in and form the paramilitaries as far as as part of the national security doctrine as a way to not spread the influence of the Cuban revolution um and 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 also as far as to put the D, uh, have the DEA in Colombia the DEA has been in Colombia for like over 20 years 30 years and Colombia is a state where it exports the most cocaine, the most drugs in the world, and now paramilitaries, as we see how the paramilitaries try, try to go into Venezuela, or they train paramilitaries in Honduras to, to oppress indigenous uh, leaders, or just right now with Jovenel Moise uh, in, in Haiti, the ex-president, which, you know, he was killed by higher Colombian paramilitaries. Um, so, so overall, like this, this right-wing oligarchy, and it's very interesting that Rodolfo Hernandez comes from the region called, known as Santander, because it was a guy named pa uh, Pablo uh, de Santander that betrayed Simón Bolívar. So, and, and you see also, like from what I've heard about Petro, you know, Petro, when he was the mayor of Bogotá, he took down the portrait of Santander and put the portrait of, put, put the portrait up of Bolívar, even his revolutionary movement, M19, that they robbed the the um, the blade of Bolivar, la espada de Bolivar, the sword of Bolivar, to try to um, try to like re um, to try to retake it for the people, para el pueblo. Um, so there's a lot of parallels with this history of Bolivarianism and understanding the Colombians in this context. As far as like um, my family too, like I'm my father was a 
an ex gorilla. He was part of the EPL. He was locked uh, back in the 80s and forced to to the United States, um, where he, he had to be exiled for a couple of decades. But overall, Colombia has been a country that's had an armed conflict because Colombia is worse than a capitalist uh, system, is worse than a neoliberalist system that many youth from the FARC that I speak to would say from the legal faction, Las Comunas, it's a semi-feudal feudal society where most of the land is owned by four to six families. So there's like when, when, when you have this understanding, you have the understanding of why social leaders get killed or why we have massive displacement. Colombia is one of the countries that has massive displacement in Latin America. That's why six million of our population lives in Venezuela and why the Colombian government would not allow the Colombians in Venezuela to vote because they know that the turnout would have been com completely different for Petro and Francia. Um, so, and, and also me being here in this historic neighborhood of Jackson Heights, Queens, I, I, I talked to a lot of Colombian youth that were part of El Paro Nacional that have had to flee because of political persecution um, and, and, and have had to cross the Mexican border. I've had family members that have had to cross the Mexican border. So like th this, this election is very important for us. And if Petro and Francia win, it will mark a change for, for us um, in, in Colombia um, and, and including Francia being a Afro-Colombian woman, social leader that comes not from a popular city. She comes from a, a, a very small village, um, a very Afro uh, ancestral village. And, and also, you know, Colombia is the third country outside of Africa with the highest population of the African diaspora, third to uh, Brazil and the United States. So, so we have a lot on the line and we, we have a lot to gain and we need to push these next 15 days for Petro and Francia to win against, against these fascists because now the Colombian oligarchy is showing their real teeth. Yeah, and uh, Yamir, talk a little bit more about the role that Colombia has specifically played as under, under these, these right-wing Uribista forces as the kind of attack dog for U.S. imperialism in the region. We see that you mentioned that, that currently the Colombian far-right government of Ivan Duque does not recognize Venezuela as a legitimate government. It still recognizes Juan Guaido, this complete clown who's president of Narnia, as uh, people joke in Venezuela, who has never won a single vote in a presidential election, unlike Nicolas Maduro, who has won tens of millions of votes in presidential elections. So the Colombian regime does not recognize Venezuela. And of course, Colombia has also attacked Cuba constantly, attacked Nicaragua, also attacked Bolivia. I mean, uh, the, the government of Colombia has been used by Washington to attack left-wing forces, not only in the country where they're killed, but also across the region. And maybe you can also talk about the strategy to try to divide the Venezuelan and Colombian peoples, because both of you, um, Yamir and Libre, you've been talking about how there's all this cultural interchange, of course, under Simón Bolívar, which is not that long ago, less than 200 years ago, Venezuela and Colombia were part of the same country. Culturally, they have a lot in common. The accent is similar. You know, people both say chévere, right? Like there's a lot in common and food is pretty similar. And there are also 6 million Colombians in Venezuela. Colombians are still actually one of the largest refugee communities in the entire world. And now, of course, there have been millions 
of Venezuelans who have been displaced because of the U.S. war on their country, the hybrid war and economic war. So there, there are these disgusting attempts to try to, to divide the Venezuelan and Colombian peoples as well. So anyway, uh, you know, Hugo Chavez referred to Colombia as the Israel of Latin America. Talk more about why, you know, you think that Chavez said that. So, yeah, Ben, so to add on to your point, as far as Guaido, you never know. You might surprise us and try to auto uh, proclaim himself the president of Colombia. <laughs> but, um, <laughs> yeah, you might, you know, the right way might try to pull that out, too, you know. Um, he certainly he has more support in Colombia than in Venezuela. Uh, well, yeah, I, I would think a lot of like the viejitos or cuchos is a word that me that, that Colombians and Venezuelans use to refer to old people would, would buy buy into like the cuchos would buy into Guaido auto proclaiming himself as the president of Colombia. But anyhow, um, as far as going back to the, the what you were saying about Colombia being the issue of Latin America. Um, yeah, most definitely. I mean, receiving military aid. The way that Israel is like a, a, a foothold for U.S. imperialism in the Middle East, Colombia is a foothold for U.S. Uh, imperialism militarily in Latin America. Uh, Colombia has over nine military bases. You have uh, over a lot of the paramilitaries and militaries that get trained in the schools of the Americas in Fort Bedding, Georgia. Uh, the schools of the Americas where a lot of death squads in Central America, like the Contras or in Guatemala were trained or, or dictators like Videla from Argentina or Pinochet from Chile uh, received this 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 uh, training from U.S. imperialism. So, um, yeah, Colombia has been this bastion uh, for the continent of constant right wingism, and not just like militarily, I, I think, but also like politically. Like when we were talking about this thing of Castro Chavismo, this this type of like propaganda against the left has been utilized in other countries and other campaigns, like in Mexico against AMLO. Or also in in Ecuador, which which um, Uribe was very uh, much a part of Guillermo Lasso, the right wing banker who's the president right now of Ecuador's um, campaign, um, you know, to get people to be afraid, you know, oh, if if you vote for uh, Correa's candidate, uh, Ecuador is going to become like Venezuela, and this whole thing about uh, uh, like Venezuela baiting, like this whole idea of of pushing Venezuela as a failed state. Um, you know, and, and the reason why Venezuela is the way it is, is because of the economic war that Washington has imposed onto the country. Um, and, and a lot of people don't understand that. Uh, but that's the thing, like, like the way they portray Venezuela it, as a failed state, it's the way Colombia is. And worse, I mean, Colombia is a, a, a state that's had over uh, 60 years of an armed conflict that has not been resolved. Because even though the FARC laid down their arms, you still have the ELN, the, the Ejército Liberación Nacional, the Liberation Army, National Liberation Army, that is still active. Um, and, and, and still, you, you have the paramilitaries constantly killing social leaders um, and, on, and also just the amount of Colombians that leave the country uh, because they can't, they, they can't find a, a, a economic stability. And a lot of them risking their lives right now going crossing the Mexican border. So... And the other, the other part of that, too, is that the Colombian right wing tries to utilize the Venezuelan migrants um, as propaganda as well to say that, look, how the Venezuelans are migrating, as well as, you know, in, in any Colombian community, you're going to find Venezuelan escualios. And it's funny, that a, lot, a lot of them try to argue with me about, oh, how, you know, Venezuela is going to become like their country, blah, blah, blah. Um, 
but I, I have to remind them that their country is under uh, intensive economic war, intensive sanctions, whether they want to believe it or not. And I, I point I point to the Venezuelan opposition, the, a little, the more diplomatic, opposi diplomatic opposition, not the far right uh, Voluntad Popular of Leopoldo Lopez and Juan Guaido, that do believe in these sanctions and see how these sanctions are also affecting them. And the reason why Venezuela is in this economic um, turmoil that they're in. Um, so under, understand, like understanding that is to, to um, deconstruct this Castro Chavismo that has been embedded in Colombian society because due to the Cold War politics, like going back, as I said, to Plan Lasso in the 1960s, right after the period of La Violencia, after the assassination of, of Jorge L. Sargaitan, who was a very progressive uh, liberal candidate that was assassinated by the oligarchy and who was a candidate too that was pushing for Latin American integration, who met with a young Fidel Castro um, and was being watched by the CIA. Um, after his assassination, that you have the period of the violencia with the liberals going against the conservatives. And then um, you have Plan Lasso that comes into place with the CIA imposing the, the paramilitaries in order to not allow the expansion of the Cuban revolution. And then in 1964, you have the formation of the FARC that they come out of the farmers movement after the, 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 the U, uh, Colombian government under the orders of US corporations were told to attack this uh, uh, autonomous region known as Marquetalia, um, which the FARC comes from and were formed. Um, like, I, like I'm saying, like this, they, oh, I'm explaining all this history in order to understand how there's been a big time uh, uh, indoctrination of anti-communism and, and folks not understanding um, why, why um, we, need, we need to support Petro and why we need to have an alternative from this semi-feudal uh, capitalist uh, system that we have. Yeah, uh, someone someone uh, commented here. Uh, they said, uh, "No true flags here." Commented, "I can barely talk, yet alone drive and talk." But you're not driving, right? You're just you're just in the in the bus. Yeah, I hope you're not driving. <laughs> no, no. Um, cool. Well, I know that uh, Libre has to go pretty soon, so we'll probably do like 10, 10 more minutes here because he has to he has to go soon. But um. Libre, I want to go back to you here before we start wrapping up and talk about, you know, you mentioned that there are people are the people in Colombia on the ground where you, you've been talking to them and meeting with activists. They're really working on organizing as the second round comes up on June 19th, which is just in less than three weeks here. One of the main concerns that people have, which you kind of alluded to, is when you crunch the numbers, it could be very close. Here, here is the these are the results from the first round. Gustavo Petro and the Pacto Histórico, the left-wing coalition, which includes, I should mention, the Pacto Histórico includes, it's a big 10 of the left. So there are social democratic groups, progressive groups, feminist groups, and there are even some disaffected liberals, but there's also the Communist Party. So there are there are some socialist forces. It's, it's a broad... It's a broad front of left-wing and progressive forces. You could say it is a united front is the term that historically has been used. It's a united front. So the Pacto Histórico got 8. roughly 8.5 million votes, which is really good, and that's historic. In the last elections in 2018, uh, Petro came in second place, 
And he ultimately was not able to defeat the current far-right president, Ivan Duque, largely because Duque stole the election by buying votes with drug money at the orders of Alvaro Uribe. And he did this through a drug dealer named Nene Hernandez, who died in mysterious circumstances in Brazil. This is all pretty well documented in Colombia. It's known that the current, the current, I want to stress this point, the current sitting right-wing president of Colombia, Ivan Duque, who is a major ally of the U.S., he's only in power because he stole the election with drug money by buying votes. And, I mean, this guy has been actively praised by all U.S. presidents. Here's a bunch of photos of Joe Biden with Ivan Duque. And, of course, there's a bunch of photos with Trump as well. I mean, this guy, he's has bipartisan support in the United States. And he is completely linked to the drug trade and stole the election with drug money. So, I mean, Colombia in this in this episode I titled it, you know, against Colombia's narco regime. It is not hyperbole to refer to Colombia as a narco regime. It it Colombia is responsible for over 70% of the world's production of cocaine and the CIA has traditionally used Colombian cocaine to fund its its dirty operations in Latin America, especially targeting Central America and the wars on the Sandinistas in Nicaragua and the FMLN in El Salvador. But anyway, the point is, getting back to this map here. So that the Pacto Histórico, the left-wing coalition, got 8.5 million votes. But if you combine all of the votes from the other two main right-wing candidates, Rodolfo Hernández and Federico Gutiérrez, they do together have nearly 11 million. So if every single person who voted in the first round votes the same, that means that, of course, Petro is going to lose. But obviously, that's not how elections work. Usually in the first round, there's not as many votes as in the second round, because the second round is technically the more important vote because it determines who the president will be. So there's probably going to be more turnout in the second round. And it also assumes that everyone who voted for Gutierrez and Hernandez ends up voting for Hernandez, whereas there are some people who voted for Gutierrez who just may not vote. And there's even a possibility that some of them could vote for Petro. Now, of course, we talked about earlier how many people who supported Gutierrez and Gutierrez himself, who represented the Oribista movement, many of them have already openly endorsed Hernandez. But there's a possibility of some of them going to Petro. And there's also the strategy you mentioned that the Pacto Histórico is trying to activate new voters, especially in marginalized areas in the periphery who have been traditionally left out of politics and oppressed by the state. So do you think that it is a realistic possibility for Petro and the Pacto Histórico to win in the second round? He did get 40% of the vote in the first round. Do you think that he can get the, the extra 10 or 11% that he needs to, to win in the second? Um, I don't really think it's possible. I think it's necessary. Um, this, this is literally um, touching on the points of, like, who will Colombia be for moving forward, right? So under Pacto Histórico, it represents many historic uh, uh, things that are more than just symbolic. If Pacto Histórico, one Pacto Histórico wins on June 19th, right? It will mark a the 
first time left government in Colombia, it will mark the first time where there are intentional policies being passed that benefit Afro-Colombian and indigenous people. It will mark the first time that there is an actual plan to implement the peace accords that were written that have not been respected by any of the right-leaning governments, which has led to the massacres and the assassinations of leaders and organizers against Uruvismo, against the far right. And so I think what the, the feeling here is we have to do it now. This is the first time in history where we can say that Colombia is actually close. More people are going out to vote. More people are getting involved in, in elections and politics. Their uh, Pacto Historico is strategically going into the periphery um, communities, but also focusing on the role of women and the role of young people, the role of students, trying to keep Colombians in Colombia. Again, when we, when we ask the question, who will Colombia be for? It will be a Colombia for Colombians under Pacto Historico. If the far right, through fraud, through buying of, of, of votes, um, is able to somehow win, it will mark a continuation of far right movement in favor of U.S. imperialism. Um, and so I think not only is it possible, it is a necessary thing that has to be addressed. And like you said, Pacto Historico is made up of a lot of um, groups um, right here, right? We have Union Patriotica, a communist group. I was just with the Partido Comunista de Colombia yesterday. And these are individuals that are boots on the ground going into the communities that um, where they have to be careful, right? And they have to talk to certain people to be able to go there um, because there are, um, the, the, the drugs are prevalent in the um, communities like Ciudad Bolivar, where I went to yesterday, right? Where um, it is a community that popped out of nowhere, out of necessity, right? Um, and so this is a, a city of almost a million people that have been uh, over uh, almost a decade have been moving and mobilizing um, under Union Patriotica, not just them, right? But in large sum, it's the main organizing group that is a key factor in Pacto Historico. And so I think this left alliance um, is what is needed to create a Colombia for Colombians. Um, and that being said, also, uh, we have to be vigilant of the diaspora and their role in, um, in these upcoming elections and going out to vote and also having testigos, having observers in the Colombian consulates to make sure that fraud is not happening. Because historically speaking, that has been one of the, uh, one of the factors that has played into um, more progressive individuals not being able to win has been the role of the consulates not really having a system, or if they do, it's ran by the far-right government. Again, over 500 irregularities have already been reported in the elections that took place um, leading up to and um, finishing up yesterday. So these are also things that, that we have to be aware of. Um, and if people want to get involved, uh, there are going to be, uh, since there is going to be a second round, right? We were hoping for a first uh, for first victory, but now the fight continues and we got to keep on going. And again, people are boost on the straps.
they're already going, they're already changing their strategy to, to get some of these people um, that voted for Rodolfo, um, to get people that haven't voted yet um, to vote and also to, to try to speak on and inspire Colombians because again, in certain places, it is literally a matter of life and death if you choose to go out and vote and who you're going to go out and vote for. And this, this is not like, like people have been killed and people are like legit going through a lot of things um, on the peripheries of Colombian society. And this is just a reality that we have to recognize and that will be addressed under Pacto Histórico. And I think that that will lead to more engagement of the Colombian people and the opening of the border with Venezuela will lead to a Colombia that has a more stable economy that is being pumped into working class people, specifically working class people, right? Not in favor, right? So we don't have to say that Colombia is the Israel of Latin America because that is not a good thing. And that is not what the people of Colombia need or want. And so I think we have a very important role uh, in, to be in international solidarity with Pacto Historico, which represents the only option uh, to create a Colombia for Colombians. Yeah, very well said. Very well said. And Libra, I, I know I know you have to go soon because you have a bunch of things you're doing there on the ground in Colombia. It's a very busy time. So I, I want to conclude with one final question for Yamir. And this is, it's a tricky question. It's a tricky contradiction. And that's you know, we kind of obliquely acknowledge that uh, Gustavo Petro, who is the only realistic option looking at the material conditions of Colombian politics, he's the only realistic option from the left to actually coming to state power. But and and he his coalition, the Pacto Historico, has a lot of members, including parties that are much better politically than he is as an individual, including, you know, we talked about the Communist Party, the there's also parties that had been uh, traditionally linked to, you know, the, the guerrilla struggle against this, you know, partially feudal, brutal regime. So it's it's a it's a, a united front. And I should also say that uh, the Foro Sao Paulo, which is, represents the, you know, the the left wing and anti imperialist forces across Latin America, the Foro de Sao Paulo has also come out publicly in support of Petro and the Pacto Histórico, despite the fact that Petro has made very, uh, I would say, egregious critiques, uh, unfair critiques of Venezuela, of Cuba, of Nicaragua. Obviously, we understand that Petro is making these comments attacking, you know, Venezuela and other socialist forces in the context of Colombian politics, which is extremely far right, extremely violent. We've been talking about that for an hour. So maybe we can understand that, you know, Petro is a politician and he's saying what he has to say in order to survive within this, the confines of Colombian bourgeois democracy. But I'm wondering if you can just kind of speak to, to the way that you reconcile some of the positions that Petro as an individual has taken, criticizing some other left wing forces in Latin America with the understanding that, you know, that the Pacto Historico is really the most important left wing political movement right now that actually has a chance of, of taking state power in Colombia. So, yeah, Ben, uh, yeah, that's something that I've had to reconcile for like a while with this uh, campaign. Um, I'm a big time supporter of, you know, the Troika resistance, as we say, that's why we call ourselves Troika, yeah. you know, supporting the Cuban revolution, Sandinista revolution and the Bolivarian revolution, you know, all three sister revolutions. 
And um, me understanding like Colombian politics too, as a Colombian and understanding like the ecosphere of like how uh, it's very anti-communist and just very pro-Washington, I couldn't understand why Gustavo Petro would say stuff like calling uh, Venezuela dictatorship, Nicaragua dictatorship. Um, but he's very careful with Cuba because he's been to Cuba like a couple of times, like a couple of months ago. I, I think he wasn't feeling well. He had like a kidney problem and he was going to Cuba to get treated by doctors. And he's also very careful to talk bad about Cuba because of the, the peace accords, the peace agreements um, of 2016. Um, so he, he's, he has to be very smart of how he gets baited by the right wing because they're going to bait him like there was a debate uh, i think one of the last debates before the before his closing that the he was asked a question he was asked is if he wins the presidency is nicolas maduro uh nicolas maduro going to his inauguration he said no but he said it in a very smart way he said no because there's no um there, there are no relations between the colombian state and the venezuelan state He's like, in order for Nicolas Maduro to come to his inauguration, there needs to be an established um, uh, relation between the Colombian government and the Venezuelan government. And that has to happen right after the inauguration. So I thought that was a very smart way to answer that question because he, they, he knows that he's going to get Venezuela baited. But then on the contrary, like we were talking about Francia Marquez, Francia Marquez, I believe, would push for a re-establishation uh, between Colombia and Venezuela. Why? Because she understands that that the war between the both, both nations is not benefiting the people at the border. It's not benefiting the economy of Colombia. And also going back to like just uh, the overall uh, armed conflict that Colombia has had internally, um, Colombia needs peace. You know, like Colombia needs to, to have like a uh, 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 like peace process, you know, like what was signed in Havana because the, the people need to reorganize and reform themselves. So I, I feel that, that Petro, you know, uh, regardless of his comments of Venezuela and Nicaragua is that we have to support him. And now more than ever, where you have the oligarchy showing their true teeth, their, their true anti-Bolivarian uh, teeth with this guy coming from the region named after the traitor uh, Santander, and also like it was very interesting that the brother Libre. I was just thinking about this. Like he was in a neighborhood known as Ciudad Bolivar, which is like a hood in Bogota. So I feel like anywhere in like in Colombia where you have like anything named after Bolivar, it has to be a. It's like a bad neighborhood, and I feel like that's done intentionally by the oligarchy. So we we have to look to Gustavo Petro as the Bolivarian candidate, and then uh, uh, Rodolfo Hernandez as the Santanderiano. Is you know, so it's a it's a it's a fight between uh, it's an anti-colonial struggle in a way because you have um, also El Pacto Historico, as we were saying, is a is a it's a organization of left-wing forces, you know, like the Communist Party, Union Patriotica, but also in movements that don't have too much of a political leaning, but are also part of the Pacto Historico, like like La Minga Indígena that have done a lot of different uh, uh, protests for their territories or, or folks in Palenque, that Palenque historically is a town in the northern uh, coastal region of Colombia, which Libre visited, uh, which was formed by uh, Afro-Colombian Maroons. It's a, it's a Maroon village 
where the folks there speak their African language still and Spanish is their second language. So I say this to say that in these next 15 days, we have to pray that the ancestors, that the indigenous Afro ancestors are, are with uh, Petro and Francia. Yeah, well, and, uh, you know, you, you talked about the importance of things named after Bolivar, and it was very symbolic that actually at the end of his campaign, before the first round of the election, Gustavo Petro, he, he ended his campaign in, in Plaza Bolivar, which is the uh, Bol Bolivar Plaza in the center of Bogota, the capital. That's where he chose symbolically to, to end his campaign. And you can see this photo of him waving a giant Colombian flag with the guy, the security teams with these giant shields to make sure he's not shot and killed. But for me, that was a very symbolic choice, concluding his, his campaign in the heart of the capital, in the plaza named after Simon Bolivar. So with that said, I know, uh, I know both of you guys have to run, and uh, it was a really good discussion, a lot of excellent analysis. I just want to give you both a chance here where we, when we conclude if you want to plug anything and maybe talk briefly about Troika Collective and where people can follow you. So go ahead, uh, Libre, first. Hey, comrades. Um, just really quick, simple uh, message. Definitely follow us. Um, we, we got a lot of things cooking up. Um, we got a lot of dope interviews. We were able actually to interview um, uh, Maria, uh, Maria Jose Pizarro, who is the daughter of one of the progressive presidential um, candidates in 1990 that was assassinated. One of four candidates that was assassinated, to be clear. Um, and uh, we're going to be uh, interviewing Vicky Sandino. So if you don't know who Victoria Sandino is, look it up because it's going to be a really dope interview. Um, they have done amazing things um, with the FARC. Um, but at the end of the day, um, Troika Collective is an anti-imperialist collective that is working to fight against imperialism. Um, not only in the global south, but also on Turtle Island, um, because revolution is necessary and we must fight for it wherever we find ourselves. Um, and the best way that we can support our people um, in, in these countries is to get rid of the primary contradiction, um, which is U.S. imperialism. Um, and also, uh, yeah, just, uh, you know, um, definitely feel free to hit us up. If anyone is in the diaspora that wants to be one of these individuals that go to the Colombian consulate. Um, we are working uh, with our comrades, um, the, the head of the Colombian uh, move to have um, testigos at the Colombian consulate. Um, I just met with her yesterday. So we're gonna be in the process of building out, uh, building that out. So hit us up on Troika if you're interested in that, because um, that's gonna be our role uh, um, in international solidarity with the people of Colombia for those that can't come um, to Colombia. And so, um, let's just be aware. Let's let's not listen to the lies that imperialism is going to say uh, when Pacto Historico wins. Um, and that's also part of the reason why we're doing this work. So we can combat the lies with truth and also with interviews from working class people that have been in this struggle for decades. Um, because what is happening right now um, under Pacto Historico is what the people of Colombia deserve. And, um, you know, Petro and Francia have been very clear, even though there have been assassination attempts and death threats, and they are they can easily choose not to go talk to people and they can easily choose not to put themselves in certain positions, but they have. Right. So the shields 
you know, those I would say are more symbolic because they already know what they're getting themselves into, understanding the history of this country, right? And so what we had to represent, what we had to know is, as Francia and Petro have said, right, this is not a victory for Petro. This is not a victory for Francia Marquez. This is a victory for Colombians. Colombians that up to now have not had any party that has been able to take a line that respects, that is trying to uphold the peace accords and that respects the life and the dignity of Colombians to be the primary, the protagonist of their own country. And so in international solidarity, let's stand with the people of Colombia um, as they are gonna be in this literal fight um, in some places, right? Leading up to June 19th elections. Yeah, very well, very well said. And uh, Yamir, uh, I'll, I'll give the last word to you. I also wanna show this comment from uh, Tesla Stellar. This guy is talking, driving, and fighting Western propaganda at the same time. Uh, but uh, Yamir, uh, final word, do you wanna talk a little bit about you know the work that you do with Troika and anything else you wanna add before we conclude? Uh, the, the woman, the Senator Libre uh, interviewed, um, Maria Jose uh, Pizarro, um, she's the daughter of Carlos Pizarro that, yes, like Libra said, he was a candidate uh, for the Colombian presidency in the 90s, but also he was the Maximo Comandante of M the M19 guerrilla movement, which Petro comes out of, Gustavo Petro. So I just wanted to add that in, just also because also I, I was like, I love that how Libra met her. Um, my, my father was actually locked up with uh, Carlos Pizarro. So it was a it was an honor just to see that uh, Troika is getting those type of interviews and that yeah that going back to the work that I do with Troika is basically trying to fight um, the media war you know like the, and also creating content and also being in support of Latin America and, and the revolutions happening in Latin America like recently I was in Cuba for for May first and I was I, I fell in love with with Cuba and just seeing the amount of different international delegations that were there from around the world and just seeing the amount of Colombians there, you know, the popular campaign is change in a country like Colombia. Because, you know, Colombia, Colombia deserves to have a popular power, popular democracy, that we, we are Latin America. You know, we are a, a Bolivarian nation, just like Venezuela. And, you know, our people deserve to, to live better, you know, el, el, el buen vivir, or like how Francia Marquez says, a vivir sabroso. So, yes, um, I'm uh, I'm just excited for these next 15 days, and I'm just, I'm very hopeful that, that our African and indigenous and, and Bolivarian ancestors are with us. Very well said to, for both, from both of you. Uh, we were speaking with uh, Libre and also Yamir Chavur from the Troika Collective. You can check them out at Troika Collective. That's collective with a K dot com. And you can find them on Twitter and Instagram at Troika Collective with a K. But there's no E in the end because, you know, it cuts off with the character limit. I, I have a link. If you're watching on YouTube, I have a link to their uh, YouTube and, uh, excuse me, to their website and to their uh, Instagram and Twitter in the description below. And uh, I wanna thank all of the super chats. Thanks to uh, ILL State Fishing and uh, A. Lauren and D or David David or D. David or, and Kyle Wool and 
David David again. I want to thank everyone for the support and all the super chat comments and all the comments. Uh, ILL State Fishing has a comment. Boycott Sham U.S. Summit of the Americas. I'm going to be doing an episode about that this upcoming week because it's happening this June and it's been a complete disaster for the U.S. It's uh, multiple countries in Latin America and, and also the Caribbean, uh, CARICOM, the community of Caribbean states have all announced they're going to boycott it. So I'll be doing an episode on that this upcoming week. And I want to thank uh, Libre and Yamir. And I will see everyone here at Multipolarista for the, the Multipolarista podcast. I'll see you all next week. So, and uh, yeah, and Libre mentioned that they're working on a, a protest against the Summit of the Americas, which is the Workers Summit of the Americas. So I'm going to be doing coverage of that in the upcoming week. So uh, with that said, uh, I'll leave you all here and I'll see you all next time. Thanks a lot to everyone for listening and watching. And thanks to the Troika Collective for joining me today. And see you next time.